Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Go ahead and be seated. Good evening. Merry Christmas to you all. Great. Six of you are happy about Christmas. This is uh, easily my favorite service of the year. Uh, I love that we all kind of get dressed up and it's at night and it's dark and there's lights and candles and the sermon is short and it's all many things that I love. Uh, but I do feel a certain tension always in this message because there, we are on the cusp of such unbridled joy, right? So if you are a child or if you have children or if you're you know, a child at heart, you're just ready, you know, like tomorrow is the, it's the Super Bowl for your life, right? Like all of the presents and the candy and all the things. I have so many children, and they're all very, very excited about tomorrow. And so the tension for me is like unbridled joy is not exactly my thing, right? Like uh, I'm a little cynical about stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and especially as a preacher, I'm like, yeah, 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 joy is great, hope is great, but like let's talk about sin right? Uh, so there's always a little bit of a tension for me in, in this message, but uh, I, I am excited to be here with you all celebrating Christmas Eve. So here's what I want to do. We'll keep it short. Isaiah chapter 9, I want to give us a reminder. I want to give us a challenge, and uh, I want to give us a little bit of hope this evening. So a reminder, a challenge, and some hope. So again, Isaiah chapter 9, Verses 1 through 5. We'll skip that first section because there's a lot of big words that, you know, Harvey had a hard time pronouncing. I have a hard time pronouncing. It's, it's crazy. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, one of the things that's always really important to keep in mind uh, when we read the Old Testament is that it is a true story, right? A lot about what we read in the Old Testament seems very far away. It is very far away. It is very ancient. A lot of what is described here just feels very, very other. And so it's easy to kind of put this layer of metaphor or this layer of just this distance between us and the story. And so, you know, I, I always tell people when, when I watch a mediocre movie, I always think this would be better if it was a true story right? Like a true story can take a mediocre story and make it great because most of our lives are super boring. And so if you read something or watch something that's even moderately interesting and it's a true story, you go, well, okay, you know, it's not, it's no Marvel movie, but it, you know, it's real. That actually happened, right? And so when we read Isaiah chapter 9, there's all this kind of metaphorical language and all this stuff that seems so different and so other, and yet this was a real story happening to real people who were dealing with real oppression and real sorrow and a real need for a harvest. The people of Israel throughout uh, the Old Testament were constantly embattled, 
right? There was always something going on, often self-inflicted, but there was always some enemy that was bearing down on them. There was always some need that they had. It's just the constant in the narrative of the Old Testament, and this is no exception, right? At this time of the Assyrians, right? They're dealing with the need for a harvest. They are dealing with the need for protection from these Assyrian oppressors. And, and in fact, in the passage right before this one in verses 18 through 22, the people of Israel had looked to what, what Isaiah describes as mediums and necromancers, right? These were the old time, you know, soothsayers and fortune tellers that we have on the corner that they had these problems that they were facing and they were going to what I would describe as kind of horizontal solutions. Right? They had these enemies and they had these needs and instead of going to God, they were going to these mediums saying, what should we do? What does the future hold? How do we keep the Assyrians from bearing down on us? How do we bring about the harvest that we need? So read with me in verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me as signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Right? So Isaiah says, listen, why would you look to the horizontal? Why would you look to the world around you for answers to your problems when you are the people of God? Why would, you be, why would you be reliant upon kind of horizontal solutions to these big problems that you're facing instead of going to God? So Isaiah says, those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Right? So there's hope in this. These very real people who are dealing with these very real problems, Isaiah promises a hope. What is that hope? Before we go to what exactly that hope was, I want us to put ourselves into the story a little bit. If this was a true story where Isaiah is challenging these very real people to find divine solutions to their problems rather than humans, darkness is always symbolic for evil and ignorance. Evil and ignorance. Do we see evil and ignorance around us today? We do everywhere. So are we walking in darkness? In many ways, yes. And Isaiah reminds us the same way he reminded the people of Israel. Don't look horizontally to poles and pundits and people who would tell you that they can be the answer for your problems. Go to Jesus. Turn to him for light. Do you, like the Israelites, need to experience a harvest of some kind, whether it's financial or relational? You need some kind of result in your life? Go to Jesus. Are you experiencing oppression, mistreatment, suffering, cruelty? It is Jesus who can break their power. Are you at war in your marriage, in your friendships, in your workplace, online? It is Jesus alone who can bring peace. So this is the reminder of Isaiah to the people of Israel that they were looking to the world around them for answers to problems that only God could solve. And he says, why would a people go to necromancers and mediums? Why should not a people inquire of their God? 
So what is this great light that Isaiah reminds the people of Israel of? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this, it might be the most remarkable part of what is a very remarkable passage, because I have five children, and I love them very dearly, because they are in the room, but children are not the solution to anything. The s- babies are not the solution to any problem that you face unless you hate silence, solitude, and money. If you hate those three things, then by all means, children are your answer, right? So I got to imagine the Israelites who are facing down all of these very real problems, and Isaiah, the prophet, goes, listen, it's going to be okay. Look to God because he's sending a baby, right? That they might be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But like, is it a warrior baby? Is it like a ninja baby? Like, what kind of baby are we talking about here? Because my experience has not been that babies solve a lot of problems, especially not like war, right? But this is the solution. And, and those of us who know the rest of the Jesus story know that, in fact, solutions like this are kind of a pattern for God, right? Jesus was born as a baby to disreputable parents in a barn in the backwoods of the ancient Near East. He, after that point, faded into obscurity for 30 years. I mean, stop and just recognize that for a moment. We've got this incredible incarnation, God come flesh, star in the sky that leads the shepherds to this moment of incredible like, miracle. We've got magi coming years later probably to worship and give gifts, this incredible moment, and then nothing, like not a single Instagram, not a single tweet, nothing, like just obscurity for 30 years. He really didn't capitalize on his moment here. You got to leverage stuff like that, right? But that's not what Jesus did. He was not formally educated, nor did he come through the kind of Jewish disciple system that would have kind of put him on the map. He chose the unchosen to be his disciples. He performed miracles, but sought anonymity, right? Like he would perform a miracle in an obscure situation and then just bail all the time. Not, again, capitalizing on those moments. He touched the disease, which was a no-no. He cared for the poor and marginalized, which nobody cared about. He loved kids who had no value in their society. He often tamped down his own popularity by shushing people, right? He would heal somebody and be like, don't tell anybody about this. I just can't, I don't want the press, right? He, he would talk about weird, awkward things like blood and stuff, and people would be like, all right, that's weird, I'm, I'm out, right? Like that, he would do that often. He, in fact, fought the powerful instead of trying to leverage them for influence, He was silent in the face of legal persecution. You see this moment where he stands before Pilate, and it's clear Pilate doesn't want to sentence this guy to death, but Jesus won't let him off the hook. And then he died a horrific, shameful criminal's death in order to win freedom and righteousness for us. This is the pattern, over and over. So as we look back, it should really kind of be no surprise to us that that Isaiah's promise in the midst of oppression, in the midst of war, in the midst of famine, in the midst of need would be a baby. 
But that baby would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. See, God knows what we want, and he knows what we need. He knows that, in fact, we need a mighty God in order to overcome the very real evil in our world. He knows we need an everlasting Father to care for us and provide for us throughout our lives. He knows we need a Prince of Peace because we are constantly at war with one another. And he knows we need a wonderful counselor because we are constantly at war with ourselves. But he also knows what we want. He knows that what we want is a conquering king, an impressive person. We want, to, we want a God who is a celebrity. We want somebody who can reflect well on us. So he doesn't play our game. See, in the kingdom of God, the solution to our problems is always to embrace weakness, seek lowliness, turn the other cheek, follow the path of death, call worldly power out for the weakness that it actually is, and generally live as if the game being played all around us is not our game. I recently saw a politician who I will not name tell a group of Christians that turning the other cheek has never gotten us anything and it's time for a new strategy. And you know what? He's right. Turning the other cheek has never gotten Christians anything in this world. And that's never been the point. That's never been the promise. So he's absolutely right. But he has completely missed the point. That Jesus says turn the other cheek not because if you turn the other cheek, eventually you get to smack their cheek. That's not the point. He says we've got a different way. We've got a different means because we're looking at different ends. God goes, I know what you need, but I also know what you want, and I'm not going to give you what you want, but I am going to give you what you need. You need a wonderful counselor. You need a mighty God. You need an everlasting father. You need a prince of peace, but you want it to be impressive because you want to walk that person up on a stage and impress all of the people around you, and so I'm going to give you a baby in a backwoods town to disreputable parents and then he's going to disappear. And then he's going to show up finally, and he's going to do some cool stuff, but he's not going to want the attention, and then he's going to say some weird stuff, and everyone's going to leave, and then he's going to die in a really shameful way, and everyone's going to go, wait, what in the world just happened? And then he will be raised from the dead to glory. Which leads us to our third thing, which is some hope. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I'm not trying to be political, especially not on Christmas Eve, but I do want us to be reminded on this day that we are celebrating the birth of our world's future king. He is not yet on his throne, and his world does not look like what it will, but that is what we are celebrating tomorrow. And the future is bright. It's full of justice, peace, and righteousness. So instead of letting tomorrow's joy be a distraction from today's pain, my prayer for us is that tomorrow's joy will point our hearts toward forever's joy. 
Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is our promise from God and our hope for the season. That the world, as we see it around us, which we could accurately describe as darkness, a mixture of evil and ignorance, will not always be this way. But there is hope. It's not going to come the way we want it. It will come the way we need it, but it won't come the way we want it. That God will give us exactly what we need. A future full of justice and peace and righteousness and joy. That is real hope. And I, and I love this word, zeal. That it's not just that this is what God is going to do in a kind of matter-of-fact way, but it is what God desires to do. This word zeal has kind of a two, two sides to it. A, an absolute hatred of all that is not of God, an absolute love and passion for all that is good. That it is this kind of two-handed desire, hatred of evil and a love of good that drives God to his he wants this for us. He wants us to experience the joy and the peace and the goodness of his kingdom. And he cannot wait to bring it about. So we see that on this day. We celebrate that on this day. That it comes through unlikely means and we don't always see it for what it is. We don't recognize him for who he is. But the promise remains. That there will be a kingdom of justice, peace, and righteousness, and he is excited to bring it. And so we celebrate Christmas as the dawning of that day, the day that our future king was born, and we look forward to the day that that future king will reign. Let's pray. King Jesus, we honor you and celebrate you on this day of your birth. We are on the cusp of joy. The joy of knowing that the war is won and will be won. That the future is secure because you are sovereign. But we also recognize the darkness around us. We recognize the darkness in us. The darkness that we perpetrate and is perpetrated against us. The evil and ignorance that consumes us, that wounds us. Lord, we recognize that. We recognize that we are often part of the problem, that like Israel, the wounds we experience are often self-inflicted. And yet we see in your life, death, and resurrection the grace to be able to admit that, knowing full well that everything we admit is forgiven by grace. In your kingdom, you have made all things new. You have reconciled us to yourself. Thank you.